success is great. Stability is great. But that level of like, let's pick you apart every second of the day fame is nothing to strive for. What's up, everyone? It's your boy, Danny Lopriori, and welcome to Off the Cuff. You might know me as the guy from the Basement Yard, Vine, the Low Priori podcast. And while I love to make people laugh, just know that I've struggled with my mental health for most of my life, just like many of you. Here on Off the Cuff, I will be talking with some of the most impactful influencers, athletes, celebrities, entrepreneurs, and mental health experts to have real, unapologetic conversations about mental health and breaking the stigma that surrounds it. This show is for you, and I'm so happy to have you here. Now, let's talk Off the Cuff. Welcome back to Off the Cuff. I'm your host, Danny Priori, and today I'm joined by an Emmy Award-winning television personality, New York Times bestselling author, one of the hosts of the Lady Gang podcast, and a correspondent for E! News, Woo! Kelty Knight. How are you? I am doing so amazing. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Where are you in L.A.? I'm here in L.A. We just got back from our Lady Gang tour. We've been on the road for the better part of two and a half months, which was wild. I have not even like unpacked my bags yet. I just rushed back into life. And so I'm here in LA in my very messy office. Yeah. Listen, I know, I know a thing about a messy apartment in a messy office. So you don't feel bad about that. How was the tour? It was amazing. You know, I think like being in the podcasting world, especially with Lady Gang and it being, I think we're just hitting our seventh year, which is crazy. You forget that when you say stuff on the quote radio that like people are actually listening. So what's cool about tour is like we went out to 15 cities and we got to see, you know, some of our listeners in real life. And they're just so cool. Like we've just the coolest ladies and the coolest community. And it was so fun and exhausting at the same time. So I'm glad it's over, but a lot of really good memories. So tell me the genesis of the Lady Gang. How did you guys get into the podcast space? And it seems like you guys got into the podcast space at like the perfect time too, because you guys are like seven yeah. years. It's the OGs. OGs. Yeah. 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 It's way ahead of the, the curve. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think a lot of our success, I like to think the show is great, but I think a lot of the success is just being at the right place at the right time. But what had happened was Becca Tobin and I were friends and she had played Kitty Wilde on the television show Glee. And we had been friends way back in the early 2000s in New York City because we were both professional dancers. She was way more successful than I was, but we were both living in New York City. And When she got Glee, by the time she got Glee, I had already moved out here to Los Angeles and was already an entertainment reporter. And I would see her on the red carpets. I'd be interviewing her and I'd be like, and we'd be looking at each other like, this is so weird. What a weird world we're living in. And the years passed and I was sort of kind of burnt out from my job. And she was definitely like the rose colored glasses had come off and Glee had ended. And it was kind of like, well, the phones are not ringing. And we sat and we're having like a coffee one day and And I was like, well, we should start our own show. We're really funny. And then we looked at each other like, well, we're not famous. So no one's going to give us our own show. And at the time, it was right when Serial, the crime podcast, was like going crazy. And I feel like Serial was that podcast. Everyone's like, are you listening to Serial? And they're like, what? It's a podcast. And then you showed your friend where the podcast app in your phone was so that they could listen to Serial. And I was looking through and I was like a big serial listener and I was kind of looking through for like other shows because I, I was spent a lot of time in the car and I was really into the podcasting medium. And I realized it was like all dudes. It was like politics, 
yeah. Adam Carolla, some crime. And I was like, where's the chick show? And I came back to Becca and I was like, we should do a show. And Jack Vanek and I have a, mat- a matching ex-boyfriend. We have a mutual ex-boyfriend. <laughs> and I knew we needed someone who wasn't like too shuttered by Hollywood. And she had been a designer and sort of this indie rock and roll, you know, designer. And I was like, this is really cool. So we got together and we pitched the show to the only podcast network we knew that made shows and got signed and started the show. And here we are seven years later, two books, a television show. I think we're at like, we're just about to hit 200 million downloads. So wild. Yeah, it's wild. Absolute savage. Good for you guys. Thanks. That is amazing. Thank you. So you guys both started, you danced for the Nets, right? Yeah. So I, my first job ever in New York City was dancing for the Nets. I also danced for the Knicks for a season. And then I was, I was a Radio City Rockette. And in between that, like a zillion music videos and stupid commercials and shitty gigs and Saturday Night Live and movies and like all that stuff. Just, you know, it was just the highlights were very few and far between. No, I mean, because I always like like to ask people that are like well versed in entertainment because my genesis is just like, you know, social media was like a big part of it. You know what I mean? And I was able to, you know, roll that into a career and do stand up and all that stuff. It's almost like I have respect, though, for like OGs that like. I came to New York with a dream. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's like, yes. and then you have to do like 15 things to just be like, to try and live the dream. Now in New York, you got to make six figures to be broke. So like, it's so crazy. I moved to New York. I was right out of high school. I had no money. I actually moved there on a, I'm from the West coast of Canada, Northern Canada. I moved there on a Greyhound bus because I had so little money that I knew the money I had would be better spent at for a rent or a place to live or for food than a plane ticket. And so it actually takes two full days and 16 hours and like a hundred thousand connections to Greyhound yourself from Alberta, Canada to New York City. And I had like two Tupperwares. I didn't even have suitcases. And I lived in, oh my God, the the places I lived and the shit I did for money was like so bananas. And at the time, this was really pre-internet and you just have to go every morning with a printed headshot and resume and stand in line at the auditions. There was no like central casting where you could like send in a reel or a YouTube video of you doing anything. It was like, you're in the fucking cold. There's 600 girls trying to be a rock at this morning and like you're in or you're out. And then like if your day ends at 10 a.m., you're like, okay, I guess I'll go take a class and waiter at night. And oh, so I lived in um, there was this apartment on 97th Street and it had six bedrooms and a walk-in closet. And everyone was so fucking scrappy that I lived in the closet. I paid less rent than everyone else, but I got myself a child-size Ikea bunk bed, loft bed, and uh-huh. the walk-in closet at the front where you're supposed to put like your bicycle and your like pantry items. Right. It was like a tiny little, I was literally Harry Potter, but on a six-floor walk-up. And I love that apartment. It was $800 a month. This is like probably in 2007, 2006. It was $800 a month. You cannot get an apartment with a bathroom and running water for $800 a month in Manhattan these days. You would like have to be rent controlled to have anything like that. You'd have to be like 97 years old and have been there yeah. like since before like World for your War. life. Yep, exactly. So it, it's cool. But, you know, it made me super scrappy and ruthless, but it also made me have so much gratitude for where I am now. I'm chill. I can never move back to New York City. Los Angeles has ruined me. And like I did the work and I so I can feel like kind of proud now, you know? See, that's the thing. Like, all right. So 
Now I have to ask. You said that you know you were born. You're you're from Edmonton, Alberta, yeah. Canada, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Where did you kind of get this drive from? Like, what was it like growing up? Like with your family? Like, did you see it in someone in your family? Did you see there was there something that someone that inspired you from an early age that lived like close to you, whether it be a family member or a friend that kind of because you're throwing like your life into the wind, like after high school. Like, if I really think about like how non productive I was when I got out of high school. It's it's amazing when I hear that people do this and make these life altering decisions at yeah. you know, 18 years old. It's such a strange thing. I, I will say I had a really crazy Aunt Vera. You know, coal mining Canada is not really known for its arts scene. And so it where I grew up in Canada, all the boys played hockey and all the girls took ballet. That was like very normal. And so it's like, a, it's very cold there all the time. And so you need indoor sports that you can play 11 months of the year when it's winter, 11 months of the year. So I grew up dancing and sort of like every kid took dance. There was no like, oh, I want to do other sports. Like it was hockey or dance. I was And so I grew up dancing and my crazy aunt Vera took me to see cats. And I was like, oh my God, I got to be on stage. Magical (laughs) Mr. Mistopheles is my dream. Like I got to do that. And so I remember from a very young age, like I've never been well-rounded. I never had any other goals. I never wanted to be anything else except like on Broadway, a dancer. Like that was, that was the number one goal. And I actually think my lack of my mom is like this super enabler. She's really tough on me, but she's like, yeah, babe, you can do anything you want. You can do anything you want. And so like no one ever gave me that reality check of like, it's very hard to move to United States. It's very difficult. This is a very difficult. She was like, okay, babe. Yeah, you do it. You do it. And then I also had like a really tough upbringing because my brother is, has mental illness and he, as a part of our family was really the main focus. You know, it's when you have someone in your family who needs that extra attention from your parents, it was like always what he was doing, what he was doing. And so I have these like fond memories of playing Monopoly by myself. I spent a lot of time by my, in my room by myself, kind of like trying to escape my family because it was dramatic, right? It was yeah, really, a lot. really hard on my parents and really hard on him, to be honest. And so I ran away to the dance studio and then I ran away. And so from a very young age, I got set in the mindset that in order to get attention and to get noticed, I had to do something really fabulous. Like I had to get straight A's. I had to be, you know, valedictorian. I had to wear a bright orange prom dress. I had to like move to New York city. Like I just, I really, it set me up for like a lifetime of disappointment in show business, but I really have been an achiever my whole life because it was kind of the only time and no fault of my parents, but it was kind of the only time that they turned their head for a second and they were like, Oh, there you are. You know, it was where, Oh, look at you go. Yeah. You know, it was like I could come home and be like, look at my shiny thing that I've accomplished here for a minute. So, you know, I moved to New York. And and to be honest, the first 10 years I lived in New York, I pretended I didn't have a family. I really wanted out. I really wanted to just I call my parents every six months. I was not an active part of my family or my brother's life. I really just wanted to escape. I thought, you know, I put up with enough of this. I'm done. And then I realized that I really miss them. And now they're a huge part of my life. So I feel like that sometimes, though. Yeah. Yeah. I feel everybody goes through that. So we kind of have a similar thing. So my brother was diagnosed with Tourette's early. Oh, wow. So my brother got like a lot of like that attention too. And I was like, my parents kind of let me just do whatever I wanted because I was like the normal one. Right. Sure. But, you know, and then I was diagnosed with uh, bipolar in my 20s. 
So I was like, you know, like a lot of it, like kind of all started to like make sense. I was like, I wish I had a little more attention there. So I had like that weird, yeah. like not official falling out with my yeah. parents, but like you kind of do. It's just like you're doing your own thing and living your own life. Are you and you don't have to say, but are you one or two? I'm two. I'm two. And then I'm type two diabetic. Oh. So I'm, I'm two up. Yeah, no kidding, huh? Yeah, I'm tuned up. I'm getting my A1C checked on Friday, though. So I was in the pre-diabetic range last time I went. Yep. So now let's see if I'm like, I'm out of there. Why are comedians always the most fucked up people? Like, in my opinion, I've interviewed every celebrity on The Sun, from Oprah to every actor to yeah. know, every television star. There is no one more screwed up on the planet than a comedian. I think it has to do with a part of our lifestyle that's the observationalist in us. I think a lot of the times we see the negative in things, mm. right? A lot of the times we see the negative in things, but it's how do I make that funny? Because that's the way that we, I can't speak for everyone, but that's a, our coping mechanism. Mm. Mm-hmm. So it's like, say like a family member died, like mm. we have to break the ice at the funeral because it's like too real and too mm-hmm. sad. Mm-hmm. So we have to make a joke and be like, well, he never like paid his credit cards on time anyway. They're like, we would have to do stuff like that because uh, socially I always dealt with acceptance issues. I always had friends. I always had girlfriends. I was, you know, my life's been good in, the, in like the normal things, but I've always felt uncomfortable. Like, am I being too quiet? Am I doing this? But then a lot of us too are, we do have narcissistic elements to us where it's like, look at me. Mm-hmm. And that's the trade-off when you do a live show. It's like, listen, like you want to be entertained. Mm-hmm. I want my ego to be stroked. Let's help each other out. And then everyone takes care of each other. But I just think that it, the way the lens that we look through to see life and the normalities and the normalities of life, and we try to spin those on our heads. But a lot of the times we internalize a lot of the shit we talk about. And then a lot of the times, though, too, when we're on stage, we're that's our trauma. Mm. That's our upbringing. Like I had a story like about my dad that I've told on many of my podcasts. Like my dad tried to hit me with a car once. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like so it's funny, you know, if you could spin it because that was the only way that we could deal with trauma mm-hmm. is to make it funny. And trauma's it's sadly but also amazingly trauma's relatable. Mm. Cuz people people relate to trauma because we all have trauma. But when I got diagnosed with bipolar, it was kind of like a a light bulb moment for me. I was like, all right, a lot of things make sense. Mm-hmm. What's the craziest thing you ever did when you were like in a mania? The craziest thing I ever up? did. Did you stay up? Did you have that? Like, did you have the stay up and then sleep and then stay up and then sleep? Yeah. So with mine, I would have really manic, 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 depressive moments. So like the craziest thing I probably say I ever do is I was going to take my own life. Yeah, that probably, that, that's up there. All right. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 it's all good. So that one's up there. And then I would say like, if in terms of like where I've had like manic things where I used to do this stuff, like three, four o'clock in the morning, like I would have these like weird moments where I would like, you know, I'm going to make an amazing song <laughs> and I would be making these songs and I'm like, oh my God, like, yo, I can't wait till everyone else is awake and they fucking hear this shit. They're gonna mm-hmm. their fucking minds. Mm-hmm. And then I would have this this manic, 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 manic energy towards like work and, and making music and doing stuff. And then I would listen to it the next day and it was absolute fucking garbage. Mm-hmm. I'm like, this is the worst piece of shit that I've ever heard in my life. Like if anybody heard this, I'd be embarrassed. 
So like it's kind of like stuff like that, and then like you mix in like doing cocaine and shit. No. Yeah, 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 yeah. I used to party hard. I'm sober now, but I used to do. If I was manic, I would always call my dealer and be like, "All right, we're gonna get a popping for like five days." I would for like five days. Yeah. And just be doing wild shit, just wild shit. But like also like normal stuff, like going to the grocery store, like all coked up and like. Right. I like going shopping, like just like in this weird manic state. And it's weird because my fiance now, when she knows, she knows if I'm getting revved up, she could like feel it and sense it. But you, you have this weird sense of like you're invincible. Yeah, of course. And it's such a weird feeling because no one can, can like convince you otherwise. Mm-hmm. But I have more manic lows than I do manic highs. Oh yeah. So, yeah. So with the lows, like I'll 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 have like days where I don't get out of bed for like a week. Yep. I'm like fucking job of the hut. Like it's terrible. Yep. Like I'm, I'm yeah. just stuck in one spot and you yeah. know that's what it is. Hey, listen, it's a tough, it's a tough illness. Oh, but being able to talk about it as much as I do and getting DMs from people talking about like, oh, my brother was diagnosed and I put him onto your show and he feels a lot better. You know, it's one of those things where it's as soon as I got my diagnosis, I was like, I got to help other people. And this mm-hmm. ties into like me being a comedian because it'll help myself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's why. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I'm like me helping people helps me because I'm an attention slut. Mm-hmm. And, you know what I mean? And I need it. I need it. So that's attention why it, slut is so good. Yeah. I'm an attention slut because I, I need to go out there and I need to feel that instant gratification of like people fucking love me, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know? And then, and it's like, great. I have that feeling. Cause it makes me feel like a sense of, Oh, I'm doing good in life. Mm-hmm. It's a slippery slope entertainment. You know how it is. Mm-hmm. I tell people all the time, like, if you have family members that are dealing with mental illness, don't try to, like, meet them halfway. Just kind of follow them. So you kind of get to, like, see, like, how they process things and how they work. A lot of people coddle people with mental illness, and I'm just, like, not a fan of that. It's, like, just because I have bipolar, like, doesn't give me, like, car blanche and be a fucking dick. That's why I try to tell people too, like you got to call people out on their bullshit, like regardless of what they're going through. It's like, you know, and there's different levels. Mm. You know, like, there's different levels. Like you could still have control over how you speak to people. You can yeah. still have control over how you handle yourself. But, yeah. you know, like, it, it's bipolar and the entertainment business. Thankfully, they mesh kind of well. They do. And it's interesting. Like I had a psychiatrist on our podcast one time on Lady Gang and we were talking about that and they're like, no, like in Hollywood, like 90% of the people there exhibit some sort of bipolar tendency. I mean, I, I feel like I have a different look at like what that really is. And I don't really love it when people are like, oh my God, that person's so bipolar. Like just because a guy's not calling you back, it doesn't mean he's bipolar. Like it's, it's actually a serious thing. And it really irks me when people act like that. But the doctor said like, the mania and the creativity that people with bipolar have. It's like, it is their special gift. It comes with a slew of like shit in the backpack and baggage, but a lot of those really, really creative people. And you know, the Selena Gomez documentary just came out and it was an incredible look into her life oh, yeah. with bipolar. And, and she's so beautiful and so famous and like dealing with that. So it's, it's a really, it's an interesting thing. It really does go with Hollywood and, and can be unchecked for so long because there's like, 
the nine to five of like your regular life does not really exist in Hollywood. So for instance, if someone is like you and needs to sleep for six days straight after they've had something, you know, some sort of mania, like it's like you just call in sick for your comedy show and you're good. You know what I mean? There's not like this every day, like someone at the office is watching you and seeing you have this destructive behavior. Like you can really get away with having it for a long time if people are not really checking in on you oh for sure and then it's also like something like hey like you know like i'm an artist yeah like, you right, know right. you could be one of those douches too so i just be like yeah. it's it's my art like taking taking its toll on me the thing that you said about fault leading or following or meeting them halfway this has been a very difficult lesson that i've had to learn in my life because i'm a fixer right like i'm someone that's like hey what is the problem today? I'm going to research. I'm going to throw a bunch of money at it or whatever it needs or time or energy or whatever it is. And then it's going to be fixed. And then we'll move on to the next thing. And mental illness is not one of those things. It's a free flowing thing. And it's like for your whole life and you just have to follow it. And like, for instance, right now with my brother, like we're going into the winter, you know, it's dark more. It's like, it's, it's hard on you. It's hard on everyone seasonally. It's the effect on someone that's dealing with any sort of brain stuff is like tenfold. And so it's like, oh, wow. Okay. This is a new, like now we have a new holiday to like think about. And, and it's really interesting. You said that because I am such a fixer that like a couple of years ago, I got this idea. Some there, I'm in more therapy than I could ever need in my life. And someone was like, oh, you know, what's really important is like for people that have some sort of mental illness is like, they kind of like tend to shield themselves into their own little bubbles. So they don't have to like really go in the world. Anyway, that's the way it is with my brother. He, he doesn't want to yeah. like He just wants to be alone because it's like safe there and people annoy him and sounds annoy him and all of it. So I was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to sign him up for the cat rescue in my town and I'm going to get this motherfucker a cat. So he has a buddy with him. And like, this was not his idea. He never asked for an animal. He's never expressed that he wanted an animal. I just read somewhere or heard somewhere on something that people with mental illness should have community and they should have animals because it helps them. And I signed him up and he was like, he doesn't want to disappoint me. So he's like, okay. And he gets the cat. It's like the worst fucking experience of his life. He's like, I can't sleep. This cat is meowing all the time. It hates me. Like, I mean, we lasted like four, four days. His life. And he was like, Kelty, I love you. And I thank you. But like, I can't keep this cat. And I was like, God damn it. Like, you know, so it's an interesting thing because for the people that are on the sidelines and just love you, it can be really daunting to know when to when to call you out on being an asshole, when it's not in your control, when, you know, when you're just been a dick, when you are well, when you are ill and when you say you're well, but you're not like it's it is a really tricky fucking slope. And most people do sadly do kind of what Kim Kardashian has done with Kanye, which is like you get to the point where it's so exhausting for you to deal with this person that you peace out. You peace out or the person pieces out on life. Those are the two kind of ending stories here. Yeah. And, you know, I think a lot of people have to the thing that really doesn't mix, though, well with like bipolar is like making a lot of money, because when you start to make a good amount of money, people with bipolar, not all, but are very sporadic. Yes, we're impulsive. Like I, I, I'm impulsivities that are like like outrageous. So like there, there are times where like if I'm feeling a certain way and like I'll be at the mall and my fiance will just be like, Danny, like go home. Like you're going a little all over the place. Yeah. I get to see someone 
who I've always admired as a creative person in Kanye West, you know, and I get to see this slope that he's on now is the hardest thing about that situation is you have to look at Kim as a wife and a mother. You can't bring in the, the sex tape and you can't bring in the, the Chris Jenner is a pimp and, you know, like, you know, all the stuff that gets thrown out there and gets thrown into the world. Right. You have to look at that as like a woman who's like, yo, how do I fucking deal with this dude? You have to just look at her as like a normal, as a normal woman that has to deal with that and be like, yo, like, how do I do this? And the hardest thing is, is most partners are not equipped. Like, why would they be? There's people that go to college and study this for 12 years. Mm-hmm. Even when they get out of school, like they have a hard time saving all of their patients and doing the whole thing. So when you're not equipped and you're handling a multi-billion dollar industry, like business, yeah. And then trying to be a mom on top of that, this motherfucker's got to go. I don't look at it as something where if somebody were to leave because they're not equipped and they don't have the emotional aptitude and the the time to do it, it makes sense. That's one of the hardest things for me is that I know that my condition could cause my fiance to maybe one day leave. Mm-hmm. And then it gets different with kids and stuff and genetics and what's the, you know, it, beca- it becomes a, a tough thing. And then also entertainment and monogamy, like they just don't mix. Mm-hmm. It's just, it, it, you know, it's just a lot of people try to have the, this, what I do for a living, what you do for a living is not normal. Mm-hmm. We're blessed. You know what I mean? Like, and, but our things that we have a hard time working with are tedious things. Mm-hmm. I don't have a boss. But the tedious thing for me is, doing the same thing that I know that is working like over and over and over again and thinking how I can make it better. How can I make it better? How can I do this? And then now it becomes the same thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I couldn't imagine to, to your point, what it would be like to go, like go work a nine to five and just be like, yo dude, like I'm in the depths of a horrible manic depressive episode. Like, I don't want to come in here and like talk to clients and shit. I mean, I can't, I really can't imagine it. And yet, you know, so many people have to do that. And, And at the same time, I think like we as a society, we're seeing like the two opposite ends of the spectrum in Hollywood right now, right? Between Selena and this documentary and what has happened with Kanye. And I've known Kanye for a long time. And I just want to say that there are parts of him that he's just a fucking dick. You know what I mean? There are parts of him. and, and, And I hate that this mental illness comes up and people like, they're like, well, I hate that he's like, you're giving him a pass because he's bipolar. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm not giving him a pass. I'm telling you that I believe he's 75% a motherfucker and 25% of this is out of his control. And the things that he's saying and the way that he's acting, I fucking hate them, but I'm giving him grace because I know this struggle and I've been around this struggle my entire life. And so I understand like, but there's parts of him that are just a fucking dick too. Do you know what I mean? But we're seeing like Hollywood being like, oh no, no, you're out. You know what I mean? Like you struggle with mental illness. You're a horrible person. You're out. And then with Selena, it's like you struggle and we're going to lift you up. We're going to make you an angel and support you. And it's like, there is no gray. What has happened is inconceivable, but I always, always, and in my own heart, the only way I've been able to make it through my life and what I have been through is to remind myself that two things can be true at the same time. Someone can be awful and be saying things that you hate 
that are so beyond wrong, that are causing an upturn in the world. And you can absolutely hate them. And at the same time, they can be mentally ill. And this can be out of their control in a way that I don't know what it is about the people who have not been close to this. They feel like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're mentally, they're bipolar, they're schizophrenic, they have these different things, but they still know what they're doing. I was like, I guarantee you what I have seen in my life. I have been in rooms where, you know, my brother has begged me and given me explicit directions of exactly how he would like me to kill him. And because he wants out of his misery and I'm the only person that can help him. And when he wakes up the next day, he has no record in five. Well, he'll stay awake for another four days and then sleep for a week. And then when he wakes up, he has no recollection of this. You can absolutely hate someone and know that what they're doing is wrong and also know that they don't have control over it. And it's like, you know, I, I am so angry and just disgusted by what Kanye's done. But at the same time, there's a piece of me that has compassion that is like, oh my God, this person is so ill. And, and also I can't imagine being, and this goes back to what you're saying about comedy. Like I can't imagine being in this mental state and having only yes men around you. Oh, do you know what I mean? Like that is the most that like, I actually think I'm glad the entire world is canceling Kanye because this might actually save his life because yeah. In these cases, 85, the stats are there. 85% of people that are dealing with this mental illness do not make it past 50 years old. Yeah. 85%. 85%. That is a fucking crazy number. Most of them are men. You know, it's crazy. And so it's like, maybe when everything gets pulled from him, he'll go get the help he needs. But it's like, it's very difficult work. Oh, yeah. Listen, you know, it's bad when you get like usually when you're an artist, you get dropped from your agency or you get dropped from your record deal. This motherfucker got dropped from the bank. Do you know what I mean? Not even <laughs> from the bank. Who's <laughs> making money from his you. bank deal. They were like, nah, dude, we're like, you can't even have your money here. Yeah, it's really. And I've been in a lot of really heated discussions over the past few weeks with this because I no one wants to have compassion. And unfortunately, like. I don't know. I think you're a fucking dick. And I also feel really sad for you. Yeah. I, feel. I don't know how to feel some other way. You want to know what it's like? There's this analogy like roid rage, right? When you're on steroids, it turns into an asshole. It's been proven not to be true. But if you are already an asshole before you take steroids, it will make you a bigger asshole. Mm. So you have to think about that. You know what I mean? So this this guy grew up in a world where everybody told him, no, you can't do this. You can't do that. You can't right. do that. He proved all of them wrong. So now he has a God complex. And then you right. put billions of dollars on that. And then you put somebody that has narcissistic. Right. Tendencies. Mom dies. Yeah. I mean, it's you like. Know? It's just a recipe for not going well. It's one of those things. And for me, I always tell myself I'm perfectly happy with where like the fame that I have now. You know what I mean? When it turns into like, you can't even take your kids to school by yourself and shit. It's like, I don't want any of that because I know I I wouldn't be able to handle it. I just wouldn't be able to handle it. It's a tough life already. And people are going to be like, you know, when people, it's hard to complain about these things because it's, it's for an outsider looking in. It's like, yo, like I go do a nine to five every day. Like you talk about like farts and bipolar. Like that's like, So it's tough. Like sometimes it's hard for us to complain because everyone tells us like, oh, what are you complaining about? Yeah, 
it's a lot of the, um, that's actually like most of two years ago, my therapy year, I would say was like the year of allowing myself to feel my feelings. Because if you think about it, like I, I left home and I was and am successful and have been able to build a career for myself. And it's like the survivor's guilt of oh, that yeah. is oh, yeah. bananas because it's like, well, I should probably give all my money to my family. But then you're like, that actually is like the worst thing that could possibly happen to them. So yeah. no, I'm not going to do that. But like come to my house in LA and versus your house is like very different situations. And like, there's this incredible, incredible guilt of like, I got through and that somehow I remember being deeply, deeply, deeply sad in 2014. I had just gotten, I had been on TV for a few years, just got married should have been my happiest time. And I was so tired at work. They were working me like a fucking dog. I was at four o'clock in the morning. I was out on red carpets till 10 o'clock at night. I just exhausted myself being like this yes woman. And I started getting really sick. Like physically, my body was like, please stop. And like my hair fell out. I, you know, like I was just, I was really, really ill. And I remember starting like the whisper of complaining to my friends. Mm. And they're like, well, I don't feel bad for you. You know what I mean? Or like, yeah, like, oh, like oh, it must be so hard to be on TV and be walking the red carpet. And I was like, really? It was really hard. And it was like, oh, you're right. You know what? You're right. I'm such a dick. I'm not being grateful. But like we as humans, we are allowed to feel whatever we need to feel in our situation. because, oh, yeah. And so you can't allow yourself to be like, oh, well, just because my house is not on fire it's not burning me. Like we have to be allowed to feel the feelings we have, no matter what situation we're in. And we have to let other people do the same thing. And that's really hard because when we look at celebrities as a whole, we're like, well, how could you ever be sad? Jennifer Aniston, look at your body, look at your hair, look at your money. Like, but those things actually don't make people happy. And I mean, it's a wild ride of like getting what you want and then not wanting what you get. And I agree. Like it's, it's funny when we started the lady gang podcast, Becca was on Glee. And, and so she had had this like level of, of fame and familiarity that would, you know, she got called by the paparazzi and, and all this stuff. And then I was like, Oh my God, I can't wait for that to be me. I'm like, I'm so ready for this. Bring me the fame. And as the years have gone on, she's really taught me a lesson in like success is great. Stability is great. But that level of like, let's pick you apart every second of the day fame is nothing to strive for. No, you got to you got to find that that fame pocket where it's just like, I'm good. I had the most humbling experience ever when it came to fame. I was going to uh, Carbone. I took an Uber. And before I got to the restaurant, like, you know, obviously celebrities go in there all the time and shit, but I took a Uber XL and the Uber XL was like a suburban, you know what oh, I mean? So it's so, like, they thought you, they were like, who's oh coming my out? God. I pull up and it's just, I get out and then they're just like, oh, and I fucking, I was like, come on, where are you going? Where are you guys going? I was like, come on, where are you at? That was like the most humbling experience. And then I, for a moment was able to live like a real, like, top tier celebrity and i was like wow that was a a terrible experience like now that like it came down and the joke like settled and i was like yo that's horrible like imagine going to dinner and having that and you know the the trade-off is always millions of dollars billions of dollars all this shit rich people kill themselves too i just want to put it out there i want people to understand 
it's true. And it really is like the great, the great equalizer, I think, oh, yeah. you know, Absolutely. and there's nothing. And, and I always say like, I would throw any amount of money, energy, time. And I have, I have looked for every specialist, every fucking snake oil doctor, every person who's like, if I pinprick your ear at 3 PM on the full moon, this bipolar will be gone. Like I have gone to the ends of the, I'm like, if you sit with your feet in hot water, it's going to make you feel like I am that person. I have thrown so much money, time, energy at this. And it, it is incurable. You know, even when you're on the right meds, even when you're on the right meds, the seasons change, the meds change, your body chemistry. It's a fucking nonstop marathon. You're running the marathon of staying alive every day. That's the thing. It's It's really hard. It's so hard. And then it was like, yo, what's up, man? We're going to put you on Lexapro. It's going to make you feel good. Going to make you gain 30 pounds, though. Also going to make your dick like not work. And I was like, oh, dope. Like, this is lit. Like, I wanted to kill myself before. Now I'm really going to fucking do it. Like, this- well, that's the thing. There, There's no like, that's so real. Oh, my God. That's like, like you know, medicine of like, <laughs> I mean, I have this dream that somewhere they're hiding like that. It's like, cool. Now I don't have anxiety, but I have tremors. So I'm like this. All yeah. like, what the yeah. fuck? Because I was telling them, like, when I first started Lexapro, I couldn't I couldn't climax. Like, I just couldn't finish. And it was like, oh, great. Yeah, no, like, I'll stay hard forever. But, like, I can't I can't do anything. Like, I'm just chilling. Oh, my God. But, like, you know, then that happens. And then I gained, like, 25 pounds. And I was like, how is this an antidepressant? I'm just fat and can't come now. I was like, it's terrible. <laughs> I was like, yeah. Like, this is, You're like, this is actually worse. I think I'll go, like, oh, God. Yeah, I'm, I was like, I, there's got to be something better than this. But then the thing that people don't understand with medication is, I always say on the show, different strokes for different folks, but like it takes time for the balance and everything to work out. And it's like, if it wasn't for, for my medication now, like I did, I know for a fact, I'd be in a lot of trouble. I went from not being able to like take a piss by myself. I was so afraid I couldn't shower. I used to shower with the thing open because I would have like claustrophobia get water all over my floor. I couldn't go out. I didn't shave. I didn't do anything. What changed that for you? I stopped listening to everybody telling me that I'm okay. So they would be like, listen, you're all right. It's just anxiety. Like, this is like a lot of everyone goes through this and everyone's giving me the advice. And they're giving me the advice that they think is the best advice for them to give me. Because again, though, that's like telling somebody with no legs to To run, to walk it off. Right. You know, like, hey, man, just walk it off. Like, you know what I mean? Like, whatever. Like, there's plenty of people out there with no legs. Like, you're good. Like, you know? Mm-hmm. And I was like, no, I was like, fuck all of you. I was like, all of you don't know shit. Mom, dad, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. friends. Mm-hmm. You guys don't know shit. Okay? Because every day I wake up, I want to fucking bury my head into this oven and never come out of it. Mm-hmm. I want to jump off of this fucking terrace. hmm there would be times where I would be on the street and just being like, I could just jump in front of this bus and not have to feel anything ever again. Mm. And then just being like, oh, like, and then in your mind, you start to tell yourself like, dude, I would never have to worry about anything ever again. That sounds amazing. Mm-hmm. And that's where my head got to. I was like, yo, like, I'm never going to have to feel any of this pain, confusion, fear. Depra- I'm not going to have to feel it ever again. Like, this is great. I'm just going to jump off of this thing. I remember I tell I've told the story on here. I put my dog in the crate, talked to him, told him I loved him. And I was mm. like, and I was like, it's a wrap for me, though. Like, I can't deal with this shit anymore. Then I thought about 
how many lives I would ruin uh, if I took my own life. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I said, my parents will never recover from this. Uh-uh. My brothers and sisters will never recover from this. They'll never be able to live full lives because they're always going to think back to what could I have done or what did I say to my brother that didn't help? Uh-huh. So I said, I-, I have to get professional help. People that went to college. So, you know, like people that went to school and busted their ass to learn about the, these conditions and diseases. So I was getting ready to jump off. And I remember just being like, listen, you're going to ruin a lot of people's lives. Let's try one last thing. Let's 5150 ourselves. Mm-hmm. So that's what I did. I went in there and I was like, I remember I went to the uh, Lenox Hill Hospital. I always shout them out. They saved my life. And they were like, hey, so like, what's going on? I was just like, I just don't want to be here anymore. Like, it's a wrap for me. Like, I can't do anything. I don't mm-hmm. feel anything. I'm afraid of everything. Mm-hmm. And when I tell you, when I got the okay that I got a bed to sleep in that night, Kelly, I'll tell you. I slept next to a paranoid schizophrenic who was screaming all night. It was the best sleep I got in my life. This is so crazy. I, first of all, that's an incredible story. I had such a crazy, oh my God, this is wild. Okay, so I had a similar thing happen with my brother this winter where in Canada, it's similar. You can't get a bed in and get mental health help, which is like why my new platform is like, I'm all I'm doing is trying to change the way people are taken in, in the hospitals with mental health crisis, because it's fucking insane, but you can't get to the level of like into, you know, the psych ward or whatever it is until you go through the emergency room. So you picture someone who's like in deep mania, who is maybe not left their house in four or five years, who is struggling beyond, who's scared of everything, who has crazy anxiety. We go into the ER and I instantly am like, drug him, like drug him, like knock him the fuck out because he won't stay. And I had to stay awake for three and a half days at the foot of his hospital bed. We weren't even in a fucking room. We were in the hallway on a cot waiting for a bed to open up. And I stayed awake and I watched his little eyes because because I would watch his eyes flutter. And when his eyes started to flutter, I'd call the nurse and I'd be like, more. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's you know, like, like he yeah. he won't ex- he can't exist around the, in this. Yeah, world. It's like Michael Myers. It's like he's yeah. like he's, he's, he's waking up. Like, you gotta- yeah, it's like, no. So when he got admitted, you know, I'm feeling like, oh, my God, this is so sad. You're here. You're you're in the hospital. And this is so awful. And he was safe. He felt relief. Oh, yeah. He felt so thankful for these nurses and doctors. And I remember after he left, he was in for a long time. And after he left, he was like, I kind of miss it because I tell other people that all the time. When you live your life, I'm assuming in this fear and this paranoia and this anxiety, when you're actually in the place where you can't hurt yourself, nothing can hurt you. I can't imagine what weight that lifts off you. Oh, yeah. I remember group sessions. Like, I'm like, yep, like ready to go to group. Like, this is dope. You know what yeah. I mean? I was like, oh, like, yeah, I'm like, yo, we playing Connect Four this morning. Like, you know, like, I was like, let's do it. Yeah. And the scariest thing was when I tell you, I can't express enough that it was the greatest, you know, the, those nights of sleep where you just wake up and you're like, I don't know where I just went for the last eight, nine hours, mm-hmm. but it was, it was heaven on earth. Mm. I just went to sleep. And that was the first time I really slept in like a month oh. like longer than two hours at a time. Right. Oh, you have just been through it. You were yeah. really, wow, what an inspiration. 
I just try to tell people it's like the reason I'm so vocal about it is because I, do, I always said when I started the show, I go, I save one person's life. The show's worth all the time and money and effort and all that right. shit because I've been through it. And then when I remember when they were like, Danny, you can go home now. I was just like, nah, I was like, I don't want to go home. Like, this is ass. I was like, I'm staying here forever. Yeah. And they were like, no, you got to go. You got to go. And that's when I started to get afraid again, because I'm like, damn, dude, I have to take the subway now. Fuck. It's terrible. Yeah. Right. Right, right. I do feel like there's a missing piece. And I'd love to get your thoughts on this because I've been dreaming up of how I can use my platform to help this world. And I think it's really interesting talking to you because you're piquing my interest in this because I feel like everyone's like, what was it about being there that made you feel so safe, that made you feel so comfortable? And then also like, well, you're sane enough that you don't need to be like locked up for the rest of your life. Like you can go out in society and exist, but like, isn't there a halfway place? Like, wouldn't it be so rad if I could buy an apartment building in LA and I could have 200 rooms and it was like kind of like a college where like you could live with your fiance, my brother could live, whoever could live there. But like, also, there was like 24-7 medical care. Like if you needed something, like you didn't have to call 911. Like someone was there. Someone was there checking on you every day, like just making sure, checking your blood pressure. Like it was like, I don't know, because the thing is, is that those exist, but they exist a lot for addicts and they exist a lot right. for like sober living or, you know, people that have come off heroin and stuff like that. And I'm like, this is not the same thing. And to classify them in the same world is like, they're totally different people. These are fully functioning people that just need to be on a schedule, that need to have nutrition, that need to have exercise, that need to have those things. And like, wouldn't it be so nice? Like if you didn't all have to live alone, feeling afraid. I I would sign me up. I live in that community. I live on campus. I move in the campus right now. Right. Yeah, of course. And you know, it's, it's, it's always the thing that comes down with those things is funding. That's, that's just mostly Uh that's all it comes down to. But yeah. So the last question that I have, because I know you got to run. When you were diagnosed, well, you have Hashimoto's, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when were you diagnosed with that? Was that around the same time that you were doing those red carpets and like feeling like shit? Yeah. So my thyroid, like, I guess you can just get your whole body out of whack when you're resting, not eating properly, all these things. And so, yeah, my thyroid was just out of whack. And then I was diagnosed and, you know, I started, I noticed right away, like I started taking thyroid medicine and stuff. And it was really interesting because people are always laughing at me because Hashimoto's is one of those things. And like thyroid stuff is like one of those things that everyone's like, Oh my God, I can't have gluten. <laughs> like yeah, you know, yeah, in LA, yeah, yeah. like it, everyone has a thyroid thing. But for me, it was really dark. I, I have a memory of being at Hollywood and Vine, which is our high, Hollywood and Highland, which is like where they do the Oscars. Like it's like the, our parking yeah. garage and they shut down that road a lot for big movie premieres. And I, at the time I was driving a tiny little, like little baby car and And I remember driving in that parking structure and like rearing my engine and just like getting so fucking close to smashing myself into the wall. And then like I'd go up another level and then I'd be like very similar to what you were just saying about like, I was just like, I can't do it. I need to like, like as if I was on this treadmill and I was going a million miles an hour and I just needed to get off the fucking treadmill. Like, yeah, for sure. and, And I felt so stupid because I was like a lot of that depression, like when you're thyroid is not working. Your body basically is like, okay, what do we need to stay alive? We need a heartbeat. We need oxygen and like everything else, your happiness, your sex drive, your ability to stay warm, your hair growing, your digestion, like everything else shuts off. And so I had nothing else and I was so low and so depressed. And I was really lucky that I stopped myself that day and I went home to my husband and I had said what I had 
done and how I had felt. And he was like, we need, you know, we need to get you some help. Like you can't sure. do this alone anymore. And I, it was really brave of him. And it's hard. Cause it's like, it was so embarrassing. Like I was just so embarrassed. So I was like, here I am at the Oscars being sad, trying to drive my car into a wall. Yeah, but that's, you know, once you get over the initial reaction of that is that you realize that you were having a real life crisis, no matter what mental health affects everybody. It doesn't matter what color you are, size, shape, what your fucking wallet looks like. It's going to fucking bite us in the ass at some point in our life. That's just what it is. But I will say one thing about Hashimoto's is that if you're going to have a disease, that's probably one of the cooler name diseases. <laughs> Thank you. I feel seen. Thank yeah, you. you know what I mean? I'll you put should. that up with my Emmys. I'll put that yeah, up with my Emmys. That's what it is. Emmys. Right I'm next like, to the oh. just like Hashimoto's. I'm like just Hashi, like, oh. man. It's like, it's it sounds yeah. like, is it a bad guy in Harry Potter? We don't know. Yeah, that's what, or like a place that'd be really hard to get a reservation at. You going to you Hashimoto's I mean? tonight? Yeah, yeah, it's like, yeah, we're going to Hashi's. <laughs> that's what it I is. love it. Looking and on the bright side, I love it. You have to. It's like, you know, I have diabetes. Like, fuck, it sucks. You know what I mean? Like, get a cooler name. Last question I ask everybody, are you happy today? I'm feeling very hopeful today. Nice. Yeah. I'm feeling like I'm in a new chapter and that I can be hopeful. I don't range from happy to sad. I range from like destructive to hopeful. (laughs) Oh, that's a, that's a good one. You know, like I'm either hopeful that life's all going on or else I'm like burning it to the ground. So that's the two places I'm living constantly. You're a savage though. And you've been a savage since you. you're like 16 years old. Like, Thank just, you. Like, like, going for it. It's an inspiration. I'm going to let you go. But before I do, where can everybody find you? Where can they find yeah. the podcast? And, you know, anything you want to plug, plug away. Sure. Thank you so much. So Lady Gang podcast comes out every Tuesday and Thursday, wherever you get podcasts. And I'm just at Kelty on Instagram and Kelty Knight on TikTok. And I just really appreciate what you're doing here. And and we need to, you know, collab again soon. Yeah, 100%. Just keep fucking crushing. Yeah. Keep All it right. crushing, Hashis. Thanks, All guys. Right. Shout out to my Hashis. Thanks for joining me on another episode of Off the Cuff, presented to you by 101 Life. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and send us some love with a review. And don't forget, we're all in this together and you're never alone. Peace. Fate Entertainment. Ah!